Hey everyone, this is Cameron from Renegade Animation on RenegadePopCulture.com. If you like what we do, please give us a like, a follow, and a listen, or share out our episodes on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere. Also consider supporting our Patreon. That way we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about the wide and varied world of animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to a brand new episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And we have a very interesting show for you uh, this week. We've got reviews for The Tiger's Apprentice, Orion in the Dark, and Hasman Hotel. But before we get to any of that, it's time to pull out the soapbox because I'm not sure when we'll have a chance to talk about the season in full, but this is your public service announcement. Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur Season 2, the first 14 episodes are now streaming on Disney+. And because the industry is the way that it is, it is imperative that you watch this series on Disney+, Plus sooner rather than later. Because, well, A, it's just a really great show. And B, the only way we're going to get a third season is if the streaming numbers are on the up and up. Cameron, I know you have seen at least the first couple episodes this season. Got anything else to add? I've seen the first half of season two, and I'm about to, like after this podcast, probably watch the rest of them. And it's such a good show. It pushes the story forward and it introduces new story beats for our characters to deal with, including our heroic moon girl finally facing something like in the vein of a near-death experience in the first episode and also suffering a very real and incredibly well-handled panic attack. They also deal with elements of trauma for what happens from that first episode going on. And it's just so well written. It's silly, and it definitely is for families, but everyone can watch this show and enjoy it. There's something there for every audience type. You can watch it for the amazing and really personality-driven animation, the killer action, the amazing soundtrack, and the very likable characters, and where some of the stories that were in the first few episodes went places and honestly talked about some really complicated stuff. I think very smart to show that for a younger audience to discuss certain topics like how a certain villain didn't really want to be a villain, but how our society and culture are set up because of very big and very complex things like capitalism well there is just no other route for them to go so please do watch this season because we need good shows to stay on the air even if this one is just going to go for like a three season run it is a very apparent now that studios are trying to cut that part out because by season three, a lot of creatives can now start demanding more money. And of course, 
we have a bunch of people who are in charge of this bloody industry who at the same time want to make a lot of money but also don't want to spend any money but you have to spend money to make these shows exactly and you need to give these creatives the time of day and to let them cook so please give this show your support if you can do not pirate these episodes either watch them when they air or watch them on disney plus multiple times please if you can legally support the show I know otherwise there are times where sailing the high seas might be a good idea because of shenanigans brought upon by the execs at those studios themselves. But in this case, take a break from the high seas and give the show your full support. But that's it for this animated soapbox. I apologize we couldn't talk about an indie spotlight. I couldn't find any that were coming out or have been recently announced. Though, if you want to watch a very fun and cabaret-inspired animated short, go check out Marmalade is Missing. Mm. It's a fun animated short that captures the sensual energy of burlesque. And the 2D animation is wonderful. Really expressive stuff. There's some nudity in it because, you know, it's burlesque, but... It really captures the art of it and just what you can do with animation when you are not bound by the limitations of real world physics. So give it a watch. But let's talk about Paramount Plus's new animated film that they dropped onto their service, The Tiger's Apprentice. So before we fully dive into this, let me just say, there have been some, take with a grain of salt, but believe them until otherwise, comments that have been made about this film where whatever we feel about it, it was very apparent that this went through a not a great production cycle. Doesn't seem like the animators were treated well and there was a contrast to what the studios wanted, but what paramount was willing to actually pay for and unfortunately you could kind of see that with this movie which really sucks because this movie had a lot of cool elements to it because it's about tom lee discovers he is part of a long lineage of magical protectors known as the guardians with the guidance from a, a mythical tiger named who and the other zodiac animal warriors Tom trains to take on an evil force that threatens humanity. Normally, I am very much adamant about every film deserving a theatrical release. With the boom of the streaming age and how films are distributed now, it has destroyed the notion that direct-to-streaming or direct-to-video has been the dead end of quality or you know what you're getting into with direct-to-video films, which is not ever the case anymore. With that said, I can kind of see why The Tiger's Apprentice got put on streaming instead of given a theatrical release. Yeah, that's pretty apparent, given its less-than-desirable visual presentation, which is unfortunate because 
while I haven't read the novel on which this was based, this is such a cool idea, like a just a really fun concept of turning all the animals of the Chinese zodiac into like spiritual warriors. That sounds like it should have been like a slam dunk, but instead it's just it's kind of just a bunt. What it feels like is a film that did not get the right amount of time to create and crafted story. And it feels like one of those animated films that were made to pitch a TV series that we are probably not going to get. Or if we are going to get, Paramount is going to put all those episodes on, like the service, in a day and then like not advertise them at all. Yep. It's like what happened with their other animated feature that was a complete disaster, Wonder Park, where the director had to be taken out of the credits, and yet their TV series that was based off of the movie basically aired all of their episodes, or supposedly aired all their episodes in one day, and then like, well, we're not going to show that again. (laughs) I didn't even realize the Wonder Park series ever actually made it to air. Like I said, it's one of those things where studios realize that their show is a dud. So they'll just air all the episodes in one day during like the afternoon when nobody is watching TV. And then just say like, well, we did it. (laughs) So you had to have been there and probably and hopefully recorded all of that because you're not going to see them again. I remember watching a reality TV show where they did that. And it's like, oh, no. (laughs) This was not popular. But back to Tiger's Apprentice. The biggest problems with this movie is the fact that it is rushing to get to the story beats. It introduces so many characters since you have the entire Animal Zodiac lineup of Guardians. And yet, half of them are taken out with no fanfare. Like, they're introduced, and then the villain's like, oh, well, I already have them, so in my grasp. And then the other half don't really do much outside of maybe Rat, Dragon, and Monkey, outside of Henry Golding's character, the Tiger. And it feels rushed. They it are, does. It's like a supercut of all the important story beat moments without any of the downtime that you are that you want and need to take in the world and build up the character dynamics because our main character super bland same with his love interest she is very much nothing in terms of the grand scheme of the movie and that is so frustrating because Michelle Yeoh is so good as a villain. She is hammy. She is entertaining. She, along with Bo and Yang as Rat, seem to be on the same page of what kind of character they needed to be. And it's something... Like, I don't know what it is about Bo and Yang. He has... I am becoming a fan of him, and I wish he had better material to work with. Same. I will say this. As a very casual fan of the most recent iteration of SNL, Bo and Yang is one of the, the best of their series regulars, but in this movie Michelle Yeoh sounds like she's just having the time of her life playing, I don't think she plays a lot of villains that often. 
she's usually more like the heroic type, but here she is just having a ball playing Lou and just really getting to ham it up while everyone else is, everyone else just kind of sounds a bit stiff, especially Henry Golding, who I normally like, but I don't know. There's just something about his character that just feels very uninteresting. It's very much a case of there's just no time to let these characters expand and be interesting. They're very one note. And unfortunately, that does also go with the the rest of the cast. Like, you have Lucy Liu, Sandra Oh, Bowen Yang, Michelle Yeoh, Henry Golding, a lot of really good people. And I've seen Michelle Yeoh be incredible in some of the more recent stuff outside of everything, everywhere, all at once. Like, The Brother's Son or American Born Chinese. She's great in, in those shows. But here, yeah, it's like, there's nothing quite right here. So maybe they just never got enough time to do anything. Because the actors, half of the animal zodiacs don't talk. They have that one little quirk, like the goat yell is like the explosions expert. But you're telling me that you got someone like Greta Lee, who is, you know, having a victorious 2023 with past lives being a monumental hit and award-winning favorite. And there's just not a whole lot to her character. And there's also like Joe Coy, who, of course, this comes out after his disastrous Golden Globes hosting and his less than stellar response to being told that he was not very good at his job. Mm-hmm. Like, I would be fine if the cast was clunky. If the animation didn't match the vibe of the acting, this film did not get a big budget. And from what it sounds like, Paramount wanted a Spider-Verse, but were not willing to pay for a Spider-Verse. As far as I know, there were only two scenes that came even close to matching matching the style that I think the creative team wanted. And they were both like kind of sort of... I don't want to call them dream sequences, but they were the ones where Tom Lee was entering the, I guess, the spirit world or something similar. Those look great. The watercolor painted look is amazing. There are some really solid action sequences. But Paramount also just put out Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. And that looks amazing. So why didn't Paramount give the same love and support here for that film. And obviously, let's just be real here, Paramount is probably on the downward slope of going to get bought out or have to get new owners because, you know, their last decade or so has been not great despite the fact they've put out some incredible movies like Top Gun Maverick. But that's also because a lot of that is on the shoulders of Tom Cruise for that one, but still... Oh, and by the way, something I just learned recently, both The Tiger's Apprentice and Orion in the Dark, which we'll get to later, they were both done at the same animation house in Europe, Micro's Image. There really is no real excuse for why this one looks the way it does. 
compared to Orion in the Dark. I mean, the probably understandable and obvious reason is that Paramount didn't want to spend the money. Yeah. It's like how Netflix last year had Animal Logic put out The Magician's Elephant and Leo, and you can pretty much tell which one got the more resources and time put into it. And it was the one with Adam Sandler. And that's a shame, but there's a really cool personal story with The Tiger's Apprentice of dealing with loss and finding your own identity. And we could use more animated films that have like Chinese, Japanese representation, Korean representation. That's an untapped market for animated films. We don't really have that many animated films that do that. And then like... I didn't have really any issues with the story itself. It's really just the plotting, the pacing, the way the dialogue was written. It it comes across very sloppy, clunky. It's like there should be jokes that land, and yet they don't. I don't remember a single interesting bit of dialogue or joke. But Bo and Yang, like, I remember the most from his performance outside of Michelle Yeoh. It's a real bummer that we're having to be this critical about this, but it's also like I've seen five animated films from this year. Three of them, which are coming out later this year, but I saw last year, but they're, you know, 2024 films for us here. Like studios need to start just getting better. It was obvious that Paramount did not have a lot of faith in this production. And that sucks. And I wish it turned out into a better movie, but I don't think anyone's going to want to become this Tiger's Apprentice anytime soon. Nope. I hope this isn't the last time that someone tries to adapt the source material or at least like borrows elements from it to tell their own original story. Because from everything I've heard about it, it sounds like it it should have been a winner, but... Apparently, it's that is not not meant to be. Like we've seen good animated films that are based around Chinese culture, and like for example, The Legend of Hei from twenty twenty one. God, it was that was a long time ago. Well, long time ago, quote unquote. But you saw the action in that movie, and it looked amazing. Probably was a pain in the neck to craft and put together. But it looks amazing. Here, it was almost there, and then Paramount pulled the plug. And that sucks. So, if you've never heard anyone really talk about this movie, there's a reason why. And if you see it on Paramount+, Plus, if you do want to watch it, go ahead if you're curious and make up your own decision. But otherwise, I would just skip it. Yeah, this is, I would call this low priority. There's been like a reignition of the discourse of how we can talk about films that we don't like without being the worst person on the planet. And to me, you just have to be respectful and productive with your criticism. We know something happened here. Something did not go right. And I'm sorry, but even knowing that... I still did not like the movie, and that sucks. I don't want to come out of a movie not liking it. There's nothing fun about that. Going in there and being like, man, a lot of people, through probably not great working conditions, were not able to 
put this project out there with its best foot forward. Let's talk about a TV show that has honestly kind of the same problems as The Tiger's Apprentice with the indie animated darling that took the internet and animation world by storm as it now, after five years, has its very first season of Has Been Hotel from the creator Visipop, and who is, you know, the same one who also made Hell of a Boss, the indie series on YouTube. Mike, while everyone has been gnawing at the bone with how they love or hate this show with a fiery passion or just kind of feel indifferent to it like I do, you have been very quiet about this. And I assume that's because you don't want to deal with the fan base that, let's be real here, not every lover of this show is terrible, but this show has one of the most just intensely toxic fandoms out there right now. Yeah. So what did you think about this show? Like five, year, like five years now, waiting after that one pilot. Which we actually talked about four years ago. It's been a minute. For the most part, I am mostly positive. Like, I am 75% on, yeah, the show is good. I understand exactly why people love it. I think the soundtrack, I listened to the soundtrack earlier before we recorded, and, like, I get it. A lot of these songs are very well composed. This has a great cast. A lot of Broadway veterans. A lot of talented voice actors. If you're a big fan of the Tangled series on Disney, a lot of people in that show on here, too. Yes. A couple cast members from Mean Girls are in here, too. Like the voice of Charlie, Erica Hennington. She played Katie in one of the productions. There's a lot of, like, top-shelf talent involved in this. Yes, I'll rip off the Band-Aid with my one criticism. Understanding the fact that we don't necessarily know how much the budget was or how they had five years to get this off the ground. So time is an issue, but budget and resources, this could have used more than eight episodes. Yeah, with the current landscape that is hopefully going to change for the better... The industry is realizing, or at least the executives are like, oh man, to make 20 episodes, we got to pay people money. Well, we're going to have to do a little workaround to fix that. So let's give this thing eight episodes. Well, they want to do two musical numbers an episode, so we're going to cut out the fact that these aren't going to be hour-long episodes. So all this show had... And it's already going to get a second season, so there's no, like, worry of, like, oh, is this going to be renewed or not? No. This has eight episodes that are all 30 minutes, and this whole season feels like it had pretty much a 12 to 20 episode storyline, or maybe a even a two-season storyline shoved into eight episodes and then they just did the super cuts of taking out all the downtime and again just removing any time to really let the characters breathe or the story take focus because listen 
I think there's a cool idea with this show. I love the idea. Base idea is great. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least is interesting. Lucifer's daughter wants to help sinners go to heaven because heaven has decided, hey, you know what? Every year we're going to do a purge in hell. And that means we're going to kill a bunch of people because we are worried of an artificial fear of y'all uprising against us and whatever. And even though it's just like, yeah, I wonder why, since this is one of those shows where heaven is actually kind of terrible and hell is quote unquote misunderstood. There are a lot of moments where this show wants to do and tackle a lot of heavy topics like substance abuse, physical and relationship abuse, toxic codependency, content warning. One of its most famous episodes deals with the fact that our character basically gets sexually assaulted a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's not a problem. Nor is the fact that this show curses a lot a problem. That's not a problem. I think a lot more people are not actually that bothered by shows cursing. No. No. The problem is the execution. (laughs) There is so much of this show that is left unanswered or very badly or poorly explained because it just has no time to. And before some people come in here being like, well, you could just join Vizzy Pop's Patreon. Like, you pay a lot, and she can answer a question during either monthly or weekly Q&As. It's like, you can learn about the backstory and lore of the show through those Q&As. And it's like, you shouldn't have to do homework. There should be no homework assignments or, like, study courses to where you have to enjoy a show. And... A lot of the show's problem, and it's a very big problem with how hell of a boss is going on right now, is the fact that I feel like at one point we were promised a different show. And of course, things all the time change between the pilot and the actual show. And the show does its best to try to bounce off of the continuity of the pilot, though they do definitely retcon a few things. And change a few elements to be less sinister and such. But it doesn't really excuse the fact that there is no time to breathe in this show. The pacing of this show is kind of all over the place. But it's such a rich premise. And these characters have so much potential. I do love a lot of the music that I think most people, and I'm not trying to speak for anyone, but... Because of the musical aspect of this series, that will probably attract a lot more fans than without it, because that is a pretty strong hook. Because Vizzy is a big fan of Broadway musicals, and I get that. I don't think the Broadway part of the musical side of this show fully comes through. Some of these sound way too pop music-ish than Broadway musical. Like, I think half of them work. While the other half doesn't. There are definitely some times where the lyrics make me kind of raise a brow and be like, huh, probably could have reworked that line. A lot of the times, the biggest problem with these musical sequences is the flow for me. Like Loser, for example. I love the dynamic and the mixed reaction to a, like how Angel and Husk 
are both in a really bad situation. So they should make a change and kind of bond with one another instead of fighting against one another due to the situations they are in. Definitely not the same level of trouble, of course. I would say Angel is in the more dire situation than Husk because of just who Angel Dust is connected to. For all the characters that sort of get more screen time, some of them get unfortunately shafted. And unfortunately, I think Baggy, Charlie's girlfriend, voiced in this show by Stephanie Beatrice, her character doesn't really get a whole lot of development outside of... Outside of the big bombshell that gets revealed. Yeah, in episode six. And she is, at the most time throughout the whole eight episodes, attached to the hip by Charlie. And Charlie is fine. She's a fine protagonist. And you definitely feel for her continued battle to help her people out. And yet, she's not the most interesting. And anytime they've tried to build that up, like, It's interesting how they talk about Charlie and her father from the pilot to the show. Because the pilot makes it sound like she has a bad relationship with her father. Like her father does not trust her to do anything in life. But then you are introduced to Charlie's dad and he's quirky. And it was supposed to be more challenging and thought-provoking. And it's not like we haven't had media, like TV shows or films, deal with complex and uncomfortable or uneasy relationship dynamics between fathers and daughters or fathers and their kids. I noticed this while I was watching the pilot that it kind of seemed like in the pilot, Charlie had more connection to Lilith than Lucifer. And we'll get to Lilith in a second, but yeah. Lucifer, as he's portrayed in the series, is almost a completely different character than how he was, I guess, implied in the pilot. It's because when you finally get to meet him and there's like all this buildup to like who he is as a person and he's like a goofy goober himbo of a dad. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I loved Jeremy Jordan as Lucifer. I thought he did a great job in the role and i love his nervousness about oh man okay okay my daughter's calling me she like this hasn't happened in a while and then he's like okay i gotta make this first impression count and then he's just like hey girl (laughs) like in the most like nervous tone he could think of and then after they want to see each other he's just like my daughter wants to see me take that depression it's a very enjoyable performance. Some of these are very enjoyable with how they are executed. A lot of my favorite moments of this show were actually with the non-hotel residents. Like, Alistair. I mean, I know what I just said, but hear me out. Alistair is... He's the breakout star of this like, series. Like, he is the most intriguing character of the show. And he is played wonderfully by Amir Talai. And he's probably the best one next to Alex Brightman, who plays Serpentis, but we'll get to Serpentis in a second. Because he's kind of a good example of the best and worst parts of this show. 
But back to Alistair. I think his stuff, like when he's talking with the other overlords, was way more compelling than what the main show was all about. Because the main show, it man, if this was made like a decade ago, this probably would have been like an episodic show where they would have multiple guests at the hotel. But the hotel itself doesn't really play that much of a part. Like at least the actual goal of rehabilitating sinners to heaven until the very end, but we'll get to that. So it's more of just like a location for the show. And yet everything that happens around it, way better, way more compelling stuff. Like the Overlord stuff was really interesting. I wanted to know more about the dynamics between like Alistair and Carmilla Carmine or like Rosie, who was also a very fun character to see get revealed in the seventh episode. Rosie was fun. Or like Zestial Morde, probably my favorite Overlord character. I wanted to know more about him and Carmilla Carmine's background. Because you do actually see them together in the pilot. Like they just front-loaded a bunch of the Overlords in the first five minutes of the pilot. Here. And then we get stuff like the uneven alliance of Vox, Velvet, and Valentino. The V's. Vox being... Feeling like he's partially in control, but also heavily reliant on the social media skills of Velvet and, of course, the manpower and and hold that Valentino has on a lot of the citizens of Hell. But when it cuts back to the hotel stuff, it really wasn't that interesting because it feels like the show was way more interested with everything else that wasn't a hotel. I even kind of felt that way in watching the pilot again. Like, in the pilot, it really seems like Charlie has this dream of making this hotel, but the rest of Hell is way more invested in whatever this turf war is happening. Yeah, like the politics of the overlords and the different circles of Hell. And there's not even, like, a semblance or reference to anything that is going on with Hell of a Boss. They're kind of, like, entirely separated universes by this point like everything the thing that happens with hell of a boss is completely unrelated to has been which is really weird but it's also kind of like those netflix marvel shows yeah also doesn't help that until amazon looks at the success of this show and said like hmm maybe we can acquire hell of a boss it staying on youtube just kind of turned it into its own thing the pacing also comes into like an issue with how in the first episode we are introduced to Adam, the first human who was brought to heaven, voiced by Alex Brightman, who also voices Serpentis. And intentionally, he's meant to be obnoxious. He's the D-bag frat bro who is heavily leaning on the legacy of being the first human in heaven. And... Not that he doesn't have a few moments of entertainment, and he is intentionally meant to be the worst. He lays out the fact to Charlie that, oh, by the way, instead of a full year, we're going to come back in six months. So from episode one to episode eight, six months pass, and yet there is no sense of time that feels like has changed or happened. Mm, yeah, that's 
that is kind of an issue that we really don't know how much time has passed. We know for plot reasons that what starts in episode one and pays off in episode eight is the angels are coming sooner than expected. But even with the in-universe time between the uh, executions, even if that was cut short, I still think the pacing of this show, they cram a bit too much in these eight episodes. Exactly, because there's like a, there are like multiple examples of this. Angel dust going from someone who does not respect boundaries and is constantly doing innuendos, some of them funny, some of them not, to having his big episode with Husk. And then, yeah, partially their dynamic changes, but they're still very much the same characters. So it's weird. It's like, here's all this growth, and then we're going to just kind of ignore it because the plot says so. Even though Blake Roman does a great job in that whole episode of how Angel deals with his abusive relationship with his boss and the just complicated, not easy to fix situation that he's in. Until they bring it up in episode six where he's, they show that he has changed and he is becoming a better person, but otherwise he's still going to do like sex jokes and innuendos and such. Nifty, voiced by Kimiko Glynn in this version of the show, is such an enigma along with Serpentis because she is one joke. She is hyper. She is someone ready to get rough and tough and also likes to kill bugs. She has no character arc, nothing. She Apparently she's supposed to be 22, and yet people are like, don't baby her when the show treats her like a child <laughs> like a demented child but a child nonetheless and yet she gets one of the biggest payoffs by the end of the first season in a really funny way but also it doesn't feel quite earned i do love the idea of nifty and you know this i'm a big fan of kimiko glenn the performance is there it's just she really just exists to be a chaos gremlin, which is fine. I love those characters, but sometimes that can come at the cost of of everything else. Yeah. And a perfect example of this, and again, the issues with the pacing killing everything, is Serpentis. Probably the biggest glow-up in terms of pilot to show because honestly serpentis gets probably the most fleshed out arc which is still not great but it's probably the most character development any character gets in a show like he starts out still wanting to take down alistair but being the you know the team rocket to alistair being pikachu but then he becomes, like, even after he gains more trust and isn't trying to sabotage them from the inside for the Vs. Like, and it's mostly, like, background work where he's becoming nicer and kinder than a lot of the other people in the actual show. Like I said, I think Alex Brightman's performance as Serpentis is my favorite out of 
anyone in this show. And I think he's got the best jokes outside of that one, like at the club. Oh. And even though it's like, it's a payoff that almost works, but then it just doesn't work. You spend a whole episode saying how sexual abuse is bad and how there needs to be consent. And then, oh, this character getting non-consensually taken into a sex room to have sex with everyone because he was too nervous to tell his his crush Cherry Bomb that he wants to have a relationship with her. And there are little moments, like when the cat key gets on his lap, he's like, it captures that moment where a cat has chosen you to sleep on and you just pet it, pet it, pet it, and just love the fact that there's a cat that loves you. And then by the end of the season, so spoilers if you for some reason haven't watched this, He's the one who makes the biggest sacrifice out of anyone to try to take down Adam. And then after all of that buildup, out of the heroic sacrifice that's about to unfold, Adam just takes him out like that. At first, I was really upset about that because it's like, that's such a terrible way to handle a character. However... By the end of the episode, the last episode, we find out that... He actually went to heaven. He did everything that Adam like hastily wrote down what you need to do to become to make it to heaven. And let's talk about heaven for a moment. Yes. The big twist of heaven is that the seraphims are really pretty much okay with making a genocide happen, which is messed up, but none of them know how you get to heaven. Or how you're supposed to even get to heaven. Unfortunately, they introduced the two Seraphims with Sarah and Emily, voiced by Shoba Narayan and Patina Miller. It's a little too late for them to be introduced as these beings who are willingly letting a genocide happen because of reason. I was going to say, I wish the Seraphims were introduced earlier in the season, but... I do like that. I do like the reveal that everyone hates Adam. The Seraphims are in support of the exterminations or the purges, but they don't like Adam's methods. Exactly. So there's a lot of buildup here, and it's probably going to go into season two, hopefully. But there's just no time to settle on the fact that, oh my gosh, these people have no idea how you get into heaven or what Adam is doing. And they have to keep that a secret. Because everyone would actually have an issue with Adam being the worst one in the room. Really, again, it's a case of too much story, not enough time. Who knows what happened? Either Vizzy and the co. did not know how to write this out, only cared about the important story beats, because of who knows if your show is going to get a second season or not in this current day and age. Or they just don't know how to pace this stuff. And it's been a problem with Hell of a Boss as well, where things randomly change and it kind of changes the context of the show. And it's not for the better. Or it doesn't help. And that's a shame because, again, there's a lot of cool stuff introduced in this show. Just nowhere near enough time to let it all breathe. And... 
listen, I know the animation is done by Bento Box with a little help from the Hell of a Boss Studio Spindle Horse. And the animation is fine. The fact that the art style is very different from the typical Bento Box production is a good thing. Oh, yeah. It shows how Bento Box can and does make distinct looking shows. They don't all actually look alike. And if they do, that's not on them. That's on everyone else. On like the higher ups not giving them enough resources and time to make more complex character designs work on a TV budget. It works here for the most part, but there are times where it looks a little clunky. And I'm not going to talk about animation errors because unless you actually look through them like you're combing through them, you're not going to notice them. It's just there's a wonkiness to how the musical numbers are set up with perspective and proportions that sometimes seep through and you see that it's like, oh, something didn't quite work out in time here. I'll admit I really only noticed it in the first episode, but that's because I was watching those first couple with a little bit more like attention to detail. In the back half, I don't don't think there were as many noticeable animation errors but also i would say that the back half just story-wise and pacing-wise still isn't great but does improve as the season progresses oh yeah exactly and i love when charlie goes to cannibal town to rouse up an army and talk to rosie and i like her dynamic of rosie which is both a great thing because it helps build up more character chemistry that I want to see like more of in the future. But also it's like Vaggy is so useless throughout most of the show that you needed another character to tell Charlie that, hey, we all make mistakes. What she does next is going to define how your relationship is going to unfold. She says... Uh- Actions speak louder than words. And that's fine, but it's like, it would have been nice to have a scene where Charlie and Vaggy have a moment to apologize to one another or have more time to be together as a couple because that's not the case here. And it was interesting to see how Vaggy changes throughout the from the pilot to the season because she was ashamed of angel dust being part of the rowdy chaos that unfolded in the pilot but then one of her solutions to everyone doing trust exercises was to throw him into a battlefield and it's like okay why is this your solution to the problem here which is obviously told like wrong, but I did love some of the jokes in that sequence where Serpentis gets thrown off, Angel Dust gets thrown off. Husk, the smartest man in the room, just quietly backs away and goes down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, no. And then Nifty, <laughs> this like poor Nifty, wanted to get thrown down into the carnage because she's a little chaotic gremlin. And then Charlie's like, no, we're not going to do that. And then Nifty was like, fine, I'll go down there myself. (laughs) Like, it's, again, this is a problem. There are a lot of things that I do like about the show. And, like, a lot of the characters sometimes do mesh too much into one another. Like, 
maybe it's a hot take, and I'm not saying this because I don't like the cursing. I think Charlie shouldn't curse. Not because of, oh, clutching my pearls here. She needs to stand out above the rest of the denizens of hell. Because it would have made the one F-bomb and I think a a B thrown in there at the end when she was in Cannibal Town and ignoring the fact that she doesn't know anything about her own kingdom if she had to ask what is Cannibal Town, even though she addresses it in the first episode anyway, when she had to deal with the most curmudgeon cannibal you could think of, Susan. If she cursed for the first time throughout that whole show in that one episode, that would have been funny because it's so out of her character. Because she's supposed to be the optimistic princess of the whole thing, but she is not. Like I said, there are moments where it shines and then there are moments where it doesn't or where it, its payoff is not as good as it could have been. And I hope season two gets more time to breathe because if it's just going to be another eight episodes of just hitting the good points, then I don't think I want to really support this show. Like, I'm not going to talk about any of the behind the scenes drama or anything that she may or may not have done. That's not why we're here. We're talking about the show entirely as a show. The rest of that is, unless you were like in the room when all this was happening, a lot of that is hearsay. But unless it like officially comes out that like, hey, don't support this person. Like the, it's like the whole, like if we get a 12 forever situation, then I don't really care about hearsay. As a whole, I enjoyed the show quite a bit. I... This might be one of the more rewatchable shows that we've covered. I definitely understand a lot of the fan appeal. And I'll even admit I went down a lot of the YouTube theory rabbit holes. So I am certainly invested in this show as a fan. It has some growing pains. There are bugs that definitely need to be ironed out, but... Well, we can leave that to Nifty. <laughs> Yeah, but do, you, do your thing. Yeah, but I digress. Like, to be clear, I watched this show like two or three times through, like one for myself, one for one friend, and then one time for another group of friends who absolutely love this show. That's fine. If you love this show, that's great. That's fine. I'm not going to tell you that you're a bad person unless you're harassing people who don't like the show. Then you are a bad person. But if you do like this show and want to keep supporting it and Hell of a Boss, then so be it. That's fine. If anything, I'm happy for this show's success because, well, okay, this may not be the the definitive standard for indie animation, but this show being as successful as it is, it is possible for independent creators to go the distance. It's the biggest problem is that Hasbro Hotel was the first one out, and now it is going to be used as a blueprint of what to do and not do. And a lot of that is pace your stories out. Don't focus on or make the what the internet wants to ship as priority over actual storytelling. But I do want to see what happens. The back half is definitely way better than the first half. 
even though the second half could still be better, but I want to see what happens with Alistair. I want to see what happens if we see Charlie's mom enter the scene, or if that is Charlie's mom at the end that we see. I want to see what happens, but I'm not going to sit here and be like, best show ever. I think Hell of a Boss and Has Been have hit the situation of like what happened with Frozen and with last year with Barbie, that it is so much a part of pop culture at points that people have gotten sick and tired of it. Mm. So now it's like we have the show that discourse is going to rev back up and now it's going to be obnoxious. And that is going to be the case. So put this in the same category as like, like you said, Frozen, the Barbie movie, even Taylor Swift in terms of there's just no way to have normal conversations online about these pop culture staples. Exactly. So uh, we'll just have to see what happens with the next season. So we'll see if it comes out next year or two years from now. We'll see. But for now, let's talk about following up with Roshi, the second big surprise of the year in animation with DreamWorks' first official Netflix original movie, Orion in the Dark. Man, I was so pleasantly surprised by this movie. Not that it doesn't have its issues with the third act, but the Sean Charmatz directed and Charlie Kaufman wrote Journey of a Young Boy with an Active Imagination faces his fears on an unforgettable journey through the night with his new friends, a giant smiling creature named Dark, was really good. Like, really, really good. Something, and I can't believe I'm saying this because DreamWorks doesn't really have a set style, which is for the best or for worse, depending on how you look at it. Something completely refreshing from their recent output. Not that I haven't liked their recent output from the 2020s, but this one is up there with, I think, Puss in Boots The Last Wish as their best film of the decade so far. I would have to agree with that. Right now, Orion in the Dark is my favorite movie of the year, which isn't as surprising because... You guys know how much I love DreamWorks animation. And also, Charlie Kaufman wrote this. So it was going to be some degree of great, but I still wasn't prepared for how well Kaufman could tailor his more heady and esoteric sensibilities into like a family film the way Richard Linklater knocked it out of the park with School of Rock. It's something so different from them. Like, what I like about this movie is that. DreamWorks sometimes gets pinned down as like the trying too hard to be cool brother to Pixar and such. And yes, I get it. A lot of their films from the 2000s were trying to ape off of Pixar's success because of Jeffrey Katzenberg being the worst person in the room. Mr. AI is going to replace animation. God, freaking. How could that guy come out and make us found a studio and help course correct disney in the 90s only to essentially turn on everyone that has made him big just the worst it's so amazing to see his downfall but you know what whatever happens to to us at least we didn't make quibi but with orion in the dark it's a mix of 
literal dream logic, emotional logic, and fairy tale logic, where we follow Orion, who is definitely afraid of the world around him, and especially when it's dark outside. And he gets essentially a crash course on enjoying the complicated world of like that takes place in the dark and in the light with dark voiced by Paul Walter Hauser. This might be my favorite Paul Walter Hauser performance and not just because it's an animated film. He's great in I, Tonya and Black Klansman and Defy Bloods and a few other films that I've seen him in. He's a good actor, but he tends to get typecasted as the schlubby kind of dopey guy especially like an icon and the black Klansman for obvious reasons, yeah. especially in that second movie. But a lot of people seem to kind of pin him down from his Itania performance where he's just kind of a, an unintelligent loser in his performances. But here he gets to be much more nuanced with his acting. He also gets to cut loose a little in his performance. He comes across a lot more jovial, even though he, much like Orion, has his own fears and anxieties, insecurities, but he loves what he does. He loves his job, and although the rest of the night entities don't really care for him that much, he just loves what he does so much that the first time that he and Orion interact with each other and they take their first flight, you just want to see the best for both of them. What I like about this movie which is apparently based off of a book, is how creative it takes its world of the darkness, like of night, where you have a multitude of different characters that do very specific things. We have Dream, voiced by Angela Bassett, who does what Dark says, the most creative and awe-inspiring work of giving everyone good dreams. Sleep, voiced by Natasha Dimitriou, who I don't think a normal Netflix or Disney film would have allowed the ways that sleep puts people to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Like, first of all, she looks like a Muppet. I love the design of this character. And she does things like basically suffocates you with a pillow or puts you to sleep with chloroform or whacks you with a hammer. And it's like, wow, I can't believe they got away with that. But I'm sure Charlie Kaufman found a way to make that work because it's like, it's not actually dangerous. She's just putting you to sleep so you can actually sleep. Not for the reasons why you suffocate people with a pillow or chloroform people, you know. The imagery just was funny to him. So he came up with the most ridiculous ways to put people to sleep. But it's like, it's such great dark humor. It is. Then we have Quiet, voiced by Aparna uh, Nacherla. Literally makes everything quiet by taking the sound out of the area so people can go to sleep. We have Unexplained Noises, voiced by Golda Rochevel, who I love her design. I love the thimble-like head and the radio body and her role of how they make noises that go bump in the night. And the dynamic of getting called out for that fact where dark is like, well, yeah, I mean, I got to go with Orion here. You do make noises that scare the daylights out of kids. Then we also have insomnia voiced by Nat Faison. I loved his performance in this one. I'm not always a big fan of Nat Faison, but I thought he was great here. He brings this neurotic 
mentality to insomnia who goes around and like if you're asleep while working he basically makes you wake up because of anxiety <laughs> and deeply personal things or memories or thoughts i love how uh, that's that personified in like cassette tapes it's such a cool little detail there are a lot of cool little animated details here like sleep when she's flying around she has like a trail of z's following her oh that's cool and, and quiet absorbs the sounds by basically turning it all into like string and absorbs them even like the what is almost built up as the antagonist at first with light voiced by ike Barinholtz. It is so fascinating that because a lesser production would have let Light be the villain. You know, right? Because he has to keep pushing Dark and his friends continuously moving because nothing stops the light. The relationship between Light and Dark is they're not antagonists. They're co-workers. They're just trying to do their jobs. Dark feels underappreciated because, of course, everything that is scary and horrifying comes in the darkness. And light brings out everything so you don't have to worry about all that. Except being continually lit does actually wreck everything. There's like a small hint of a environmental message there with how the second half of the film handles. Like, okay, let's see what happens when Dark is taken out of the equation. Now that you mention it, that does make a lot of sense. This whole movie is all about how Orion needs to deal with, in a coming-of-age journey, same with Dark, the complicated reality of life. You have to take the good with the bad. You have to take the light with the dark. And it's so calm. Like, this could have been a very obnoxious movie, but instead of being loud with some of these characters, especially with unexplained noises, they treat the audience like they're watching something like The Princess Bride. And I don't mean to make that comparison lightly because the film kind of has a Princess Bride story structure that is cute, but sometimes kind of falls apart in the third act, but we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. It's a very compelling and very nuanced movie that's just a light, 90 minutes and is not like tackling anything like that we've seen from DreamWorks like in the Kung Fu Panda 2 or Mass Extinction in How to Train Your Dragon 2 or something like that. It's it's more personal and the fact that it literally will take its time to take a break from all the whimsy to let some of the characters bond and build up what's going on in the actual story is great. Like, how many times can you say an animated film from a U.S. studio treats its viewership with the utmost respect? Not often. And before we get to the the very non-linear structure of this film, I want to point out how great Jacob Tremblay is as Orion. Oh yeah, he's great. They gotta get that, like, Jacob Tremblay young kid roles out of him. Before. Even with that in mind, like... I think he's supposed to be, like, 15-year-old, like, in this story. But between this and Luca, and also Harley Quinn, because he's voicing Damian Wayne, Tremblay has kind of turned into a a very good voice actor. Yeah, he is. He's a very talented individual. Like I said, the rest of the cast is really good. You also have people like Carla Giugino. You have Matt 
Delapina, Nick Kishiyama, Mia Kimmy Brown. Herzog. I want to get to that in a second because it leads to my favorite underrated joke of the movie. But we also have like Shannon Chan Kent and Colin Hanks as Orion as an adult because you find out that Orion in the dark is being told from the perspective of a, fa- of a father trying to help his daughter fall asleep. That then goes into that daughter now as a mom listening to the story from in the future from her child where Orion is now an old man. But at the beginning, there's this little moment where Dark explains what his purpose is through a very short black and white parody of those edutainment videos from like the 60s and 70s and such that you would normally get played in like a science room and such Mm -hmm. and or like a science class and Werner Herzog is the narrator there and for the uh star room at the planetarium and I love the joke of a dark going it's just like yeah you know I tried to submit it to the Sundance Film Festival but it got rejected and I love just, there are so many layers to where that works. It's such a silly pun. And it's also just a funny joke of him trying to submit a very short film to a film festival. But the fact that they chose the Sundance, and especially since we are two weeks out of Sundance, very funny. It's a film with a bit of comedy that it's clever, but it's not obnoxious and honestly like orion might be the most obnoxious thing about the movie only because he is so jaded and afraid of the world that he doesn't enjoy anything so it becomes his journey to enjoy life about all of his fears and anxieties like a lot of that is played for laughs especially all of the illustrations in his is like his journal there is a funny scene where he's confronting the bully, what was his name? Richie Panici? Yeah, Richie Panici. The scene in the, in the locker room where he finds that page, like, oh, wow, I'm famous. And it ends with Orion saying, thanks, Richie. That's how he gets his journal back. Hey, wait a minute, you drew me dead. Nobody draws me dead. <laughs> it's so charming. And I like the look of this film. It's very obvious that this has a smaller budget. But with very smart art direction, they made this work. I love when Dark is flying through the air and you see him kind of glide through what looks like water, but it's, you know, actually the sky. Um, Like when it goes from day to night and all these designs are so cool. I love these designs again for the characters and I know some people have said, like, uh, oh, these human designs look a little TV quality-ish. And it's like, no, it's definitely a design decision that's not because of the cheap budget. Lest we forget, this is the same outsourced animation that DreamWorks used for the Captain Underpants movie. It's a very deliberate design choice. Exactly. And if you want to see what cheap and where the stylized designs don't work, watch the Diary of a Wimpy Kids film, because even though I'm sure they are just not given any time to make those more interesting, it's like where the budget betrays the art style. But here, it looks whimsical. Like, if they gave this a few more 
million to like make it more polished looking, I guess. You could throw this in a theater and people would love it. And it has elements of 2D animation thrown in into the mix as well. Not often, but when it pops up, it's like a nice little punch to the yeah, like overall the, flavor. Um, like the journal entries and the this was one shadow sequence that again kind of makes me wish that me and my shadow was revived from the DreamWorks graveyard. God, I want that film too. Like, or, or give it to someone else who will actually take all that concept and make it work. Because that's such a cool concept, but we'll get to that another time. Where I do think the film falls apart just ever so slightly is the fact after Dark dies. And we are cut to, like, in between now... Colin Hanks talking to his daughter, but now his daughter grown up is talking to her son now that we know the context later on. It gets a little confusing about how it works, like how the daughter from ends up in the world with Orion and such. It's a little messy there. It's a little confusing. It's a little much at the end when they do the whole time machine thing, but it makes so much sense when you realize the context to it. Yeah. Like It could have been handled better, but otherwise that's my only little complaint about this movie. The ending kind of falls apart a little bit, but it not having a clean ending, it kind of works for, I guess, the framing device of all of this being like a story told through... Now it seems like it's told through like multiple generations. First, we just think this this is a movie running on traditional family animated fantasy logic but then it turns out we take apart one layer and this is just a story that the adult orion is telling to his daughter and then it turns out the story at the end is hypatia telling the story to her son it does get messy but let's also not forget that this is a charlie kaufman script and his movies aren't exactly the cleanest but i do like the overall moral and storytelling at the end like i said it's just an execution thing so Mm -hmm. but man dreamworks put out essentially like what if they teamed up with a24 situation it's a what if situation of what if we'd made a smaller budget animated film gave it a more creative art style to work with and then do a different tone that we probably couldn't do or risk with a theatrical release even though I think this thing would have done super well theatrically. Just run with it. This is what we've been trying to tell studios to do all this time. I don't mean to bring up the graveyard again, but do you remember that project, um, Spooky Jack, that DreamWorks was setting up with Blumhouse? I was thinking about that today when I was watching this movie. Like, revive that. Like, do something with Blumhouse or uh, what's the new horror studio that got made with the guy who does the conjuring films and and blumhouse atomic monster yeah atomic monster the and a director who does the do aquaman films james wan yeah james wan get together with them do stuff like that that would be so cool like this is like a good foundation of what you can do with that because the art style works really well for ryan the cool like sketch book look of everything or like the painted look of the hair or the backgrounds and environments 
it does really well with what they were given. And again, they don't have a whole army of budget-breaking celebrities. You can do this. Make little animated films. Experiment with more. And they don't need to cost like $200 million. And like, hell, DreamWorks and Illumination have shown you can make super successful animated films with, at the bare minimum, $80 million. The possibilities are endless. And if a movie like this can exist, then... There's no excuse why DreamWorks or even like A24, since they acquired Has No Tell, they can do something like this too. Use the medium of animation to tell stories that are beyond the usual tropes and cliches of like the mainstream studios. Like Disney could do this. Pixar could do this. Laika is very much just doing that already at the cost of, you know, those films don't make money. Illumination's adult brand, Moonlight. We're going to possibly see something of that, hopefully soon, but there's going to be that change. I think that is what's going to happen, or hopefully that will happen, where we see these studios start experimenting or not treating a small budget as you can only do so much. Get creative, have fun, don't color within the lines, go a little out there and such. And that's what I like about Orion in the Dark. It's so much what we've been asking for major studios to do. Definitely go see it. It's the best US-based animated film of the year so far. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this compares to Kung Fu Panda 4 and The Wild Robots. Which I'm looking forward to both of those this year, but... Same. I'm curious to know if I like those two more than this one or if I like this one more than those two. I'm kind of curious because obviously me being a big fan of the Kung Fu Panda trilogy, I'm already kind of going into four with expectations, but the wild robot, other than the director, I have no idea what to expect. I can't wait to see it. So I, I want to see at least some kind of teaser soon and who knows maybe after this they'll be like hey look at this wild robot teaser and it's like god damn we could have reacted to that <laughs> as much as i like doing mostly positive episodes on this podcast this is one of those things where it's good to cover a bit of everything something that you kind of are in the middle of or that you're conflicted about or maybe you don't like or and something that you love because art is not just one direction of how you react to it. This episode, kind of a great example of the entire gamut of what animation is capable of, can fall short of doing. And this episode is as broad covering at least Western animation as possible. If you want to check out any of these shows, and you a lot of y'all probably already have, or movies, go ahead and do so. We might take a break and just get ready for the anime podcast. I am patiently awaiting the New York Children's International Film Festival lineup, so Mike and I are going to try to cover that as well. But until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Cam's Eye View. I have my own website called camseyeview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. 
I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash view. That's where you can find me. And you guys can find me on various social media at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and that place at Ren Pop Culture. You can also find us on YouTube, on Podchaser. Consider supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash renegadepopculture. Listen to all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Need to escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.